If you are a guest here with us this morning, thanks so much for being here with us. My name is Stuart McCrav. The joy of serving on staff is one of the pastors. And obviously, you came on a pretty exciting Sunday. Uh, we don't normally have the building uh, decorated as such, but uh, it's pretty enjoyable to see. Every year, it's fantastic. We get about a 100 kids every year that come and get to hear the good news of, of Jesus. So uh, if, if you're not able to be uh, volunteering for any, any sort of good reasons, would, would, you, would you, though, commit to praying for this week, praying that God would do powerful things throughout the week? Um, we love that. Well, we're going to continue our series in 1 John. Uh, if you'll flip to chapter 2, we're going to pick up where we left off last week, looking at verse 29. And we're going to look at 229 through chapter 3, verse 10. And... Uh, Maybe a preview of attractions that come. We're not only looking at John's first letter, but when we're done with First John, we'll do a sermon on Second John, and then we'll do a sermon on Third John. Uh, sometimes the, the more forgotten letters, and so we'll, we'll cover all of John's letters here in the end. So we are going to look at First John, uh, chapter two, verse twenty-nine through chapter three, ten this morning. Let me give just a little background. <clears throat> Sometimes it's important throughout just to kind of catch us up on what is going on and what prompted this, this letter. So John's letters are dated uh, in, in the 80s AD. And so this is, we've intercept, in, intercepted ancient mail here, uh, which is pretty fascinating to think about. So this was dated about the 80s, sometime in the 80s AD. And he is writing to the churches surrounding Ephesus False teachers have risen amongst the body of believers. They've left, but as we saw last week, they're actually still trying to deceive those who remained. So John's letters are to those who remained. And the heartbreak for those who remained is that they thought those who left were Christians, that they were one of them, but then they left. So they're left with dealing with a kind of crisis of faith. John, who, who are true Christians? And maybe more importantly, John, am, am I? Are they? What does this mean? The, the church at large at this point is new and volatile, as we can kind of see from John's letter. It's, it's disorienting to see those in whom you shared life with, ate a meal with, shared Christ with, leave. Not just leave, but leave and uh, espouse teachings that are contrary to what you've been taught and what you believe. John knows the situation, but maybe more importantly, this, uh, this apostle, this, this pastor knows well what's going on in their, in their hearts, their inner struggle. So starting with the passage that we looked at last week, John starts to take all that he'd been building up in, the, in that first part of his letter, and he starts relating it to the situation at hand. Who are true Christians? How can you be assured that you are? And in our text, John continues to put, push on ethical living as being a chief evidence of whether or not you are a true Christian. Ethical living. Well, let's go ahead and get into our text. Now, interestingly enough, we're going to start with the first verse and the last verse. Why? Well, John uses a literary technique where you frame a passage with repeating themes to clue to what you are going to be teaching. 
That's what John does with the first verse and the last verse. There's repeating themes that clue us into what he's going to be teaching. So let's go ahead and read verse 2, chapter 2, verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. And then verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Maybe you saw the repeated themes, the way I'm kind of articulating them is progeny and practice. Progeny and practice, right? We got progeny, born of him in 229, the children of God and children of the devil in 310. And then there's this thing, practice, right? Everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. And then in 229, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So progeny, practice. Now the way that these themes connect is like this. Your, your practice, how you live, gives evidence that you're either a child of God or of the devil. Your practice proves whose progeny you are. That, that's the logic of verse 229. I don't, I don't know if you, you caught it. It does not say whoever practices righteousness will be born of God. It's the exact opposite. It says whoever practices righteousness has been born of God. Has been born in the original language is a verb that was completed in the past, but with present ongoing consequences. And maybe what's more, it's also something that's done to the person, not done by the person. It was God who caused the new birth. Has been born of God. So simply, the divine new birth, it, it precedes and produces righteous living. Maybe another way to think about how these themes of progeny and practice connect is the adage, like father, like son. Now, John's assumption has been that he is writing, those who remained, he's writing to children of God. That is his assumption this entire letter. When he addresses them, it's a, it's a we, it's an our. His assumption is they are children of God. And so between 2.29 and 3.10, between the adage like father and like son, John gives two exhortations for God's children to live out. Now, as Pastor Doug has noted, John gives very few exhortations, commands in his letters. And so when he, when he does, they kind of stand out like, like neon lights. And there are two of them in verses 1 through 9 in chapter 3. So let's, let's read these verses. This is where we're going to spend the rest of our time. And then note, right in the beginning is the very first exhortation with the word see. Here we go, chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin 
is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning and no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children. And then here's the second exhortation. Let no one deceive you. And here's what they must not be deceived about. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Verse eight, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. In verse nine, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. These two exhortations give shape, structure these verses. So with that, we could summarize this text like this. In view of the themes of progeny and practice in 2.29 and 3.10, in John, in 1 John 3, 1 through 9, John gives God's children two exhortations to live out together to give evidence of the genuineness of their faith. Be amazed by our Father's regenerating love for us and resist the deception how we live doesn't matter. And I think we can see how these exhortations relate to those, those surrounding themes of progeny and practice that frame the text. All right, let's look at the first exhortation found in verse one. And then it, it, it kind of marks out this little subse subsection that's verses one through Three. So let's reread verse one. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Stop there. At the, at the notion of born of him in 229, John is just overcome by the thought of God's love for us that caused us to be born again, regenerated at his, as his children. And so John exhorts God's children to see Behold, give attention to what kind of love the Father has given to us. The expression, what kind of, is used to convey astonishment when encountering something foreign, uh, never, never seen or experienced before. The, the, the disciples... The disciples, when, when they experienced Jesus' divine power in stilling the storm, in astonishment, they say in Matthew 8, 27, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the sea obey him. This, this man is otherworldly. Brothers and sisters, so too is our Father's love for us. And he lavished on us by which we are called children of God. And it's more than a title. John wants his readers to know that God's regenerative love for them has changed their whole reality. And so we are. Brothers and sisters, the Father's otherworldly love for us caused us to be born again as his spiritual sons and daughters. And so we are. 
Nicodemus in John 3 just, just couldn't understand spiritual regeneration, the, to be born again, the, the, the new birth. Jesus twice told him, unless one is born again and born of water and the spirit, he cannot see or enter the kingdom of God. John 3, verse 3 and verse 5. I mean, Nicodemus literally thought that he would have to get back into his mother's womb to make this spiritual thing happen that Jesus was talking about. He was just confounded, but Jesus told him that he needed a, a spiritual rebirth that only the Holy Spirit can reproduce. To be born again, to be born of him, to be a child of God, the Holy Spirit would have to resurrect Nicodemus's dry bones and give him a new heart Family, children of God, be amazed by your Heavenly Father's regenerative love for you. Well, John immediately makes a connection to their situation. End of verse one. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. The, the false teacher's rejection of them, they did not know them, was because they did not know God. They did not know the Father in a saving Way. And so, brothers and sisters, when, when you get rejected for being a, a child of God, for being a Christian, and I'm not talking about because you're being a jerk, but because of who you are and what you believe in, don't take it personal. Don't be surprised. The, the problem's not you. It is that they do not know the Father. Listen, our, our Father's love for us is not, is not meant to merely be an intellectual reality that we assent to. The Father's love for us, the, the love for us that caused us to be born again is to be a reality that we behold that we consider deeply and, and in, such, in such a way that our hearts are moved to astonishment, being awestruck, saying, well, what kind of love is this? Family, when, when was the last time you, you gave unhurried thought to your heavenly Father's regenerative love for you. The last time you deeply considered that you're a son of God, a daughter of God, because he lavished his otherworldly love on you, causing you to be born again. Why does John exhort us this way? Why does John exhort us this way? Because he wants our hearts to be moved. He wants our affections to rise up for our Heavenly Father, to swell up in such a way that it, like Father, like Son, that we move to respond and live in ways like Him and live in ways pleasing to Him. This is exactly where John goes in verses two and three. Two results for being a child of God. Verse two, let's read it. 
Beloved, literally the loved of God, we are God's children now, again, their present spiritual reality, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be, it's a promise, like him. Because we shall see him as he is. Here's the principle. Here's the principle. God's children are promised. They will be in the end, either when Christ returns or you go home to be with him, God's children are promised that they will be in the end transformed in God's perfect family image, Jesus Christ. Now this isn't that God's children become divine little gods, but that in the end God's children will be morally and physically perfected. We are God's children now. With all our faults, flaws, remaining sin, but our Heavenly Father is not content to leave us where he found us. Because we are his children, our Heavenly Father has made the sure promise that we will ultimately be transformed into the likeness of Jesus. This, this promise is inseparable to his regenerative love for us. Now, John's a bit vague on what all this will be like. It, it, it isn't something that we can fully understand now, evidently, but we will when we see Jesus face to face. I think as a side note, right, it, it's okay sometimes to say, I don't know. I'm not sure what that, what that, what that looks like how that works itself out, but we can trust this. We know this. John is saying this. Our, fa our Father will finish what he started in us. Amen? Amen. Brothers and sisters, be amazed by our Father's regenerative love for us because he will, in the end, perfectly transform us into the family image, Jesus Christ. Amen. Second result of being a child of God, verse 3. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Here's the principle. God's children have purifying power in the confident hope of Christ's return to pursue purity now. In other words, not only does our Heavenly Father promise that he will, will ultimately transform us into the likeness of Jesus in the end, but he gives us power now to pursue Christ's purity through the hope of Christ's return. Now, this hope isn't hope like, I hope that the commanders win the Super Bowl in my lifetime. <laughs> That's like wishful thinking. Whew. No, no, this hope is confidence. This is like when we might say, well, I am financially investing, investing in my future and I am committed and consistent and so I, I hope that the dividends will pay off. That's more of a confidence than a wishful thinking. And so it is here. And so it is here. Our confidence in Christ's future appearance is based on Christ's accomplishments in his first appearance. Do you see that? 
Our confidence in Christ's future appearance is based on Christ's accomplishments in his first appearance. Brothers and sisters, be amazed by our Father's regenerative love for us because as his children, we have purifying power in the confident hope of our big brother's return to pursue purity now. Brothers and sisters, as you stand in awe, in awe of the Father's regenerating love for you, you'll be moved with affection for him to be like him. Like father, like son. I, I know that there are plenty of us and we're more slanted toward the, the fellas in the room that we're not affectionate or readily affectionate. But we all do have affections for something, something that does actually enrapture us, grab our attention. John, John wants God's children to have their all taken over by the thought of God's love for them so that they will be moved to act like him. Yes. Yes. To, to say yes to the things of righteousness. And say no to the things of sin that are not of him. Listen, what you're captivated by in all of will take hold of you and motivate you towards its direction. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18 that as we behold the glory of the Lord, we're transformed into the same image. This is how God has wired us. Our hearts are always captivated by in all of something. And as God's children, it's either him or something lesser. So family, let's be in awe. Oh, let's be astonished by our Father's regenerative love for us. All right, let's consider John's second exhortation. And this was in 7 through 8a. So let's start with verse 7. Little children, and here's the exhortation. Let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. We're called together to resist the deception and how we live doesn't matter. Again, there's these categories of progeny and practice at play here, right? Don't be deceived. What you practice, how you live, gives evidence that you are either a child of God or a child of the devil. Now, what does John mean by practice? You've seen this. It's come up a lot. In fact, it comes up six times in our passage, once in 229 and then five times in verses uh, 4 through 10. 
To make a practice of something is to do it willfully and habitually. To make a practice of something is to do it willfully and habitually. This isn't the occasional acts, but a dedicated lifestyle, right? It's the adage, uh, practice makes perfect. What are you practicing? What are you, what are you trying to perfect in your life? Now in the surrounding verses, the verses that surround seven and eight, four, five, six, second half of eight and verse nine, John argues that what you do does matter. Now it's interesting, his arguments are all slanted, if you notice here, they're all slanted towards why a child of God cannot make a practice of sinning. It's, it's interesting, it's not, it's not uh, positive, if you will, of why they ought to be practicing righteousness is all that God's children ought not be practicing sin. Why, well, why is that? Well, it appears that the false teachers were promoting a strict duality between the body and the spirit, the, the body good, holy, uh, I'm sorry, <laughs> other way around. Soul, good, holy, body, evil. What's more, the evil body is destined for destruction. So who, who cares how you live? Have low expectations for the evil body. The spirit is all that matters. So they'd argue your lifestyle does not give evidence to if you're a child of God or not. It's irrelevant. It's evil. Have low expectations for it. The spirit's all that matters. Well, this wasn't what Jesus taught. This wasn't what the apostles taught. And the recipients of this letter knew that. So John slants his arguments towards you cannot be a child of God and make a practice of sinning. So three arguments, three arguments to resist the deception, how you live doesn't matter. The first one is in verse four and it has to do with the nature of sin. Let's read verse four. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness, and then kind of definitionally he says, sin is lawlessness. Some translations say, maybe the one you've got in front of you says, everyone who sins breaks the law. But that's not the depth that John is trying to communicate. The word lawlessness doesn't simply mean to break the law, it does, but it also has the idea of disdain for the very idea of there being a law that we must submit to. And it's more than that. Lawlessness is also the rejection of God's authority and the exaltation of the autonomy of the self. Deception about the nature of sin can come on all sides. There is danger to be deceived from without and there is danger to be deceived from within. Derek Webb, most known for being the lead singer of the former Christian band Cademan's Call, uh, renounced his faith and walked away from Christ several years ago. Uh, that was really heartbreaking for me because that was one of the first public Christian figures that I had sort of an association with going all the way back to high school. And that was just, that was bewildering and offsetting for me. I, I didn't know how to process uh, that. Anyway, all that to say, I recently came across an article entitled Derek Webb's Ode to Deconstruction, and it's about his newly released album entitled The Jesus Hypothesis. Here's what the article had to say. Webb claims on his website that The Jesus Hypothesis is his first Christian and gospel album in 10 years. 
You don't have to listen very far into the playlist to discover that it's not Christian and gospel at all. Yes, the subject matters Christianity and the gospel, but it's all about how Webb has rejected both. In his song, God in Drag, Webb hijacks Jesus' language from the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said, but I say unto you, and he puts it in the service of his own deconstructive narrative. He sings, you've heard it said that man is fallen and that Jesus is the only way to be saved, but I say unto you, you're beautiful and free. And he goes on using Jesus' words to deny the essential truths of the faith. In another in song entitled Boys Will Be Girls, Derek sings a duet with a drag queen who goes by the name Flamey Grant. It's a celebration of transgender identities, including drag queens and a rebuke of Christians who will not affirm them. The album is essentially an ode to deconstruction and renouncing the faith once and all uh, delivered to the saints. It is grievous beyond description. Perhaps the worst thing about the whole project is that he's marketing this darkness to Christians. But it's nothing at all like the Christian music he used to sing, not by a long shot. It's most grievous to leave Christ. But it's pathetic to remain dependent upon the people of God to buy and consume your heretical products. But that appears to be what's going on. And although I don't think it takes much discernment to see this for what it is, it is yet deceiving. Man, it's tough uh, when we see people that we look up to, uh, people that we love, um, walk away from Christ, start espousing things that we know are not true. It's difficult. It's Deceiving, to use John's language, because this isn't like a theoretical thing. This, is, this has got flesh on it. But the deception isn't just from without. The deception is also from within. We can deceive ourselves about the nature of sin. We can deceive ourselves into thinking that our sin is just foibles or personality problems or they're, they're just subjectively determined or maybe we can just sort of domesticate them and put them to the side. They're not that bad. Or, or they're under the rubric, well, as long as it's not hurting others. I mean, we, we can be our worst enemy when it comes to the deception of sin. But as one commentator said, woven into the DNA of sin is a lawless, traitorous, insolent, anti-Christ character. It cannot bear God's authority. It cannot bend to Christ's rule. And though isolated incidences of sin do not amount to a life of lawlessness, only a practicing of sin does. Listen, even the smallest sins are lawlessness in utero. I mean, to sin is to be like Adam and Eve before us and, and take the fruit of the tree. It's, it's the desire to, to be our own God and to be our own lawmaker. Sin is rejection of God's authority, and so it is rejection of God. Therefore, God's children, we cannot make a practice of sinning. We cannot make a practice of rejecting, rejecting God's authority and rejecting God. Brothers, if, brothers and sisters, if we're to resist the deception, how we live doesn't matter we, we need to understand the nature of sin. 
Commentator Karen Jobes says, anyone who expects to stand in confidence to be like Jesus Christ when he returns must deliberately and vigorously reject sin. For not to do so reveals a heart that rejects God's authority. The second argument is found in verses six and nine, and it has to do with abiding with Christ. Let's read it, verse six. No one who abides in him, Jesus Christ, keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him, and then verse nine. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Now, some translations have uh, verses six and nine like this, and maybe you have one in front of you. And with that, I think this is important. Um, Everyone who remains in him does not sin. Everyone who sins has not seen him or know him. And then verse nine, everyone who has been born of God does not sin because his seed remains in him and uh, he is not able to sin because he has been born of God. Of course, this gives the impression that Christians cannot and do not sin, but you know, we, we know that ain't it. <laughs> also, <laughs> also, if that's what John meant, then he'd also be uh, contradicting himself in some earlier spots, like chapter one, verse eight. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So, so John isn't suggesting that children of God do not yet sin. Rather, he's still putting his finger on a way of life. Look, in the original language, the word sin in every form in both verses is a present tense verb implying a, a linear and continual action. That's why the ESV translates, it keeps on sinning. because that's, that's what that's intending to mean. So what John is saying then is, children of God, don't be deceived. If you abide in him and he abides in you, you can't live a life characterized by sin. Now, John got this abide language. Maybe this, is, maybe this is new. Maybe, like me, you're like, oh, yeah. Jesus used that language. And in particular, in John chapter 15. Let me give you just verses four and five. Abide in me, this is Jesus speaking. In case you were looking for the red letters, they're just black here this morning. <laughs> abide in me, Jesus said, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now maybe you've heard of the theological category, union with Christ. (laughs) I missed something. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Mine's still black. All right, you know what? Okay. That's, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. <laughs> All right. Good, good. All right. <laughs> All right. All right. So maybe you've heard of the theological category, union with Christ. Children of God are united with Christ, and Christ is united to them, and in that union, all that he accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection becomes theirs. Union with Christ, abiding with Christ, synonymous language. And it is a fundamental characteristic. It is a fundamental identity for the Christian. Why? 
because in that union, all that he accomplished becomes ours. So, John says in verse 6, no one who abides in him, the one who took away sins and is sinless himself, that's verse 5, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Pause there. John's spiritual logic is this. How can those who abide in that one make a practice of sinning? The, the sinless one who took away sin won't now cozy up to sin. One commentator said it like this. How, how can anyone abide in him, live in him, commune with him, worship him, and keep sinning as before? We could soon light a fire under the sea or breathe deeply on the moon. Christ holds no tinder for sin. He gives no oxygen to lawlessness. If we abide in him, then sin cannot abide in us. Not persistently, not presumptuously, not peacefully. And then John goes on, no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Family, if we're to resist the deception, how we live doesn't, doesn't matter. We, if we're going to resist that, we, we must understand that a lifestyle of sin proves that we do not abide in Christ, and it proves that we do not even know God savingly. So, so those who abide in Christ cannot keep on sinning. And then there's verse 9. Those, those in whom Christ abides cannot keep on sinning. Verse 9 makes Christ abiding us central. It does it like this, right? It starts off, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning because God's seed abides in him. And then he just repeats himself in reverse. And he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. But the central claim is because God's seed abides in him. John says later in 1 John 4, 4, little children, you are from God and have overcome them for this reason. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. If you've been born of God, you cannot make a practice of sinning because God's seed, Christ, through the indwelling Holy Spirit, abides in you to overcome the world, to overcome the works of the devil, to overcome sin. Listen, if you say you're a child of God while making a practice of sinning, you also say that Christ is impotent to enable you to do otherwise. Brothers and sisters, if we're to resist the deception of how we live doesn't matter, we must understand if Christ abides in us, then he does so to empower us to not make a practice of sinning. John's final argument to resist the deception of how we live doesn't matter comes in verses 5 and 8. And this argument has to do with the purposes for why Christ first appeared. Two, two purposes. First purpose for why Christ appeared, verse 5. You know that he appeared in order to, there's the purpose, take away sins and in him there is no sin. I mean, unlike what the false teachers were pushing, John says, sin matters. 
Sin matters. It matters to God. It matters in our relationship to God. In order for the Father to claim rebels to his throne as children of his own, the sin that stood between them had to be dealt with. Jesus took away sins. He removed the stain of sin through his atoning work on the cross. Poetically, Psalm 103, 12 describes it like this. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Jesus first appeared to remove sins as far as the east is from the west so that rebels like us could become sons and daughters of God. And we consider this when you are tempted to make a practice of sinning. Consider this when you are tempted to, to sin. Jesus died to take away your sins. Will you take them back? Will you roll the, the stone back and take him down from the cross? You see, family, don't, don't be deceived for God's children to make a practice of sinning is to declare that Christ failed in his first appearance. Sin has no place in the lives of God's children because Jesus, the sinless one, came to take away sins. Second purpose. Second purpose for Christ's first appearance is in the second part of verse 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The, the devil's work is essentially to undo God's work by turning people away from God and to sin. The devil's work essentially is to undo God's work by turning people away from God and to sin. This work can involve tempting people to sin, enticing people to sin, hindering the work of God, oppressing and harming people in the church, deceiving people, and accusing people before God. They can't make you sin, but he has work. And brothers and sisters, John tells us that the devil's work was destroyed by the atoning work of Christ. The sins you see, the, the sins of God's children are the basis for the devil's work. Bringing up our sin is how the devil intends to hinder God's work, oppress, harm, deceive, and accuse God's children before God and demand God's judgment. But, but through the power of the cross, that basis is destroyed. The, the, the devil's works are vain efforts by a defeated enemy. Let me consider this, when you are tempted to make a practice of sinning, when, when you are just tempted to, to sin, consider this, Jesus came to destroy the devil's works. Will you now endorse them? Family, resist the deception of how we live. Doesn't matter, it does. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. Yet the Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil. So for, for God's children to make a practice of sinning is to declare that Christ failed in his first appearance. As if he didn't destroy the works of the devil. 
Sin has no place in the lives of God's children because Jesus, the Son of God, came to destroy the works of the devil. This this series, we've just sort of encapsulated it through the word assurance. It, It is disheartening. It is confusing, very unsettling when people that you love, that you've shared life with, that you've shared Christ with, leave. And that's because they moved, but they have left, rejecting the truths that you were taught and that you believe. John writes to these that he calls little children. And God preserved this word from the 80s AD for his children today. It was like you and I to have assurance, to understand that we can have expectations for evidences of who God's children are. You shall know them by their fruits, Jesus says. 229 and 3.10 frame this passage with the themes of progeny and practice. And then we, we saw the connection is what you practice, how you live, gives evidence that you're either child of God or child of the devil. And between 229 and 3.10, between like father, like son, John, John gave us two exhortations for us, God's children, to live out together that give evidence of the genuineness of our faith. Being amazed by our our Father's regenerative love for us ought to stir our affections. Ought to stir our affections in a way that we are moved to want to lay lay, lay behind lesser things for the glories of living like our Father and doing the things that are pleasing to Him. And to resist the deception, how we live doesn't matter. It's critical for us to be able to cut through the lies of the world, the lies of the devil, the lies we tell ourselves. Truly, what we do reveals who we are regardless of what we say we are. Brothers and sisters, we, we, we still sin. We said earlier, if, if you say you're not, then you're deceiving yourself. But as children of God, we cannot make it something we willfully and habitually do. What what does need to mark our lives is righteousness, but when sin shows up, and it will, what needs to mark us is 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Family, there is grace to repent. And there is empowering grace through our union with Christ, abiding with Christ, the sinless one who came to take away sins, who came to destroy the works of the devil, to press on into being God's children, to be who we are. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for this, this word.
It's a word that you have kindly and graciously preserved all these years so that your, your children now can better know who you have made us to be through your love. Father, that we can not be deceived. We, we live in not just a potentially deceiving culture, we, we still have remaining sin in our own hearts that deceives us. We desperately need your help. Thank you for equipping us with these, these arguments. How we live does matter to you. You have caused us to be born again, to be your sons and daughters, and because of that spiritual reality, we, we are to live in ways like father, like son. So empower us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.